As always, we'll begin with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things are so well-pleasing unto thee, for thou with the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Amen. It's good to be together again. You know, Great Lent is the, the time for catechesis par excellence. I have some friends who um, who do catechism before Vespers on Saturday. And they stay during, during Nativity Fast, which is November 15th until, until January 25th. Excuse me. It's been a long day. December 25th, Nativity. I was trying to go old calendar. Yeah, I'm like, you guys need to fast a little longer. Um, so 40 days. And then, and then, of course, during Great Lent, too. So I have some friends who do their catechism on Saturdays. And they require, they tell people, you're required to go to catechism. And if you miss a session, then you're not going to be received into the church. Come to the, come to the service. I mean, come to the catechism and stay for the Vespers. And I've been thinking about how to train people to get to Vespers more. Because in the past, um, Vespers and liturgy were always seen as a unit. Vespers, Orthros, and liturgy, actually. And uh, Father James, actually my predecessor, would say, either, he would say, if you plan on communing on Sunday for the liturgy, you either have to come for Great Vespers on Saturday or all of Orthros on Sunday. So I've never told you guys anything like that, but I've thought about it because, uh, I mean, I always tease people. If you think about whether or not you should come to a particular service, just ask yourself whether or not Father Jeremiah is going to be there. And then there's your answer. Do you, know? you don't get brownie points. You get a, It's a blessing. You know, it's just, it yeah, you know, was I was telling you guys, I don't know if I, that I'm not a, a nose counter. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't pay attention to how many people, but I can tell when there's like five people there or something. And um, Anyway, we should, we really should try to see, it's very countercultural. It's very different. People like their Saturdays. That's my day. That's our family day, you know, for people. And uh, it is, it's a big sacrifice. I was listening to a, to a podcast I don't do a whole lot of these days because there's just so much content out there. But I, I listen to a homeschool podcast because I homeschool. We homeschool our kids, and uh, there's an Orthodox homeschool group that puts out a podcast every now and again. And uh, the lady lady was interviewing a, a guy, and he was just talking about all different kinds of things. But he said 
at one point in time, he said, we were trying to get an Orthodox mission started, which is like a church plant. If you've been in the Protestant world, it's just starting a church. You have a little core group of people. You don't own your own building yet. You don't have a full-time clergyman or anything, but you just start, um, you're starting to meet. You're talking about developing something. And after they got their core group together, they asked for a priest and a priest was sent to serve this little mission. And he was from the Russian Orthodox tradition. And he just said, just so you guys know, whatever experience you've had before, the way that we do it is if you plan on communing on Sunday, you go to church on Saturday night, period. And that's, and they were like, what? No, we've got dinners. And he goes, then you just show up at the dinner a little later, you adjust. But he, he said, and I'm not telling you it's like even my preference. That's just our practice in our tradition. And they kind of had to swallow that pill, you know, because they had this particular, it was in the Russian Orthodox tradition. And, uh, and he, the, the guy who was a convert doing this interview, he said, that was one of the best things, gifts that was ever given to us. Because we were told, we were basically taught like, you could miss it, but then you just don't receive Holy Communion the next day because you're not properly prepared. And that's a decision you make. And the priest wasn't, again, he wasn't saying it's his prerogative or his preference per se. He was just simply saying, this is how it is. And when we become Orthodox, it's out of the realization, and you'll hear me say this repeatedly, that I need to change. It's not that the church needs to change. It's that I need to change. It's not that Christ needs to become more like me and more understanding of me. It's that I need to become more understanding of Christ. We want the Holy Spirit to blow, to blow in our ear and for us to feel good about it. And sometimes he knocks us over instead because that's what we need. You know, We need to be humbled. We need to be taught. We need to be formed. And so... When I, when I heard that, I thought it was very insightful. Yes? So when you go to great, great Vespers, and then Saturday night or Sunday morning, yeah. the preparation for preparation for going to yeah. service, is that, you, you, you still do it, right? Is that? Of course. Okay, okay. You always say your prayers in preparation for Holy Communion, okay, right. which are linked on our How to Become an Orthodox Christian page. And it's just a little service that takes about 15 minutes um, that we do every, every time before we receive Holy Communion. And I, re- and I really encourage anyone who's seriously considering becoming Orthodox, and especially catechumens, to start practicing those prayers so that all of a sudden on the day you're going to be you know, baptized or something, you're like, what are, where are those prayers? Am I supposed to do them? You've been practicing not that, not that you're going to be receiving Holy Communion that day, but you're anticipating that maybe in a month, you know, when my baptism comes, I will, and then it won't catch you by surprise. I'm all about, I understand the human, the human mind enough to know that if we don't anticipate things, we allow ourselves to be caught by surprise, and then we, and then we make excuses. I didn't realize, oh, I didn't realize that you had, it was like 15 minutes of prayers that I have to do. That's why I told you to start practicing in it, you know, early for that, um, so that you're ready. What are you thinking, Jeff? 
No, they're not in orthros. They're, no, they're, they're, they're prayers that are done privately. So we do them at home. And I often tell people that you can do it, you can do it Sunday morning or Saturday night, if depending on your, your routine. Some people have a hard time. They're getting up in the morning, getting the kids dressed, trying to get out the door. And it's kind of um, axiomatic that the devil's going to just try to get at you when you're preparing to go to church on Sunday. Or you're just going to get at yourself and one another because you're trying to get there. You know, you're trying to do the right thing. And whenever, whenever you're trying to do the right thing, then you see, you see almost every, you, you become laser focused on anything that gets, that prohibits you from doing the right thing. You know what I mean? You become, become hypersensitive. So if some people blame it on the devil, and I think he likes to upset us on our way to church. I mean, one of my friends who's a monk says, uh, don't be surprised if you want to get in, argue, in an argument in the car and on your way to church, because the, being at church is the last place the enemy wants you to be. And uh, so to discourage you and to think you're not worthy of being there, but you have to push through. And remember, like every time we make a mistake, it's also an opportunity for a redemptive love for one another. And when you finally tune into it, and you're not acting surprised. And again, I'm always, I'm all about people not getting surprised by things. Don't get surprised when something difficult happens. Don't, don't get surprised when, you, when there's friction as you're trying to get ready for church. At some point, you go, I see, we know what's happening here. We know. And so we need to be extra patient with each other, quickly forgiving of one another, and so on. Um, and also, along with the enemy trying to prevent us from getting to church, there's also just me. I'm just, I just, I like my comfort. I like the idea that maybe I have the right to sleep in. I could sleep in. I could skip orthros. I could show up a half an hour late to liturgy. And who's going to care? And, you know, I'm not the kind of priest who, who gets on people's cases. Like, you're always, why are you guys always late to church? I don't think I've ever said that to anyone. Now, if they ask me my opinion, I'll give it to them. Get to church early. Get on time. You know, make sure you're there. And I will tell people, and this is a, a little catechetical point, we do not commune, for those of you who are preparing to be received into the church, we do not commune if we show up after the gospel reading. That's kind of the, there's a little flexibility there because things happen. Um, sometimes you're running late. But uh, if you're there after the gospel reading, you show up and I'm already giving the homily, then you just wait until next time to receive Holy Communion. And uh, sometimes things that are out of your control happen. And some things that, sometimes things that are in your control happen. And that's okay. Um, it's humbling. Do, do you do the prayers of preparation before the pre-sanctified liturgies too? Anytime you're receiving Holy Communion. Okay. Yeah. So it means you have to be intentional about yeah. it. You know, you know you're going to receive the body and blood of Christ. And so you say the preparation prayers than the night before or the day of. And sometimes you get lucky and you show up and Yegor is doing them in the church. You know, on, on some weeknights and things, I have him come early and, and do the pre-communion prayers at uh, about like 25 bef till, 25 minutes leading up to the service to give us enough time 
<clears throat> also, when you're saying prayers like this, when you're saying prayers that, that we do repeatedly over and over again, at least once a week, sometimes more than once a week, um, you familiarize yourself with them. doesn't mean that you become too, too comfortable with them. But it also means it doesn't have to be totally laborious every time you say the prayers. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be taking you a half an hour to say your pre-communion prayers, for example. Because you're familiar with them. They're starting to get ingrained you know, within your heart and in your mind. Some of them, I, I'll read the first line and then I'll just start. I can almost close my eyes and say the whole prayer, you know. And uh, because, like for example, because I do it so frequently, I do it with a little kind of forward movement, not rushed, but smoothly, flu- with fluidly, you know. In the prayer book, they incorporate a small compline into it, so it's a little bit longer than... Yeah, so you don't have to do that small compline and the prayers before Holy Communion. You can just do the service of preparation. Um, and if you normally do like morning prayers, I don't know if people, if people do morning prayers before they come to church on Sunday or if they say, I'm at church on Sunday, that's my morning prayers. You know? But if you normally do before you come to church, then you can let the prayers of preparation supersede your morning prayers too. Now, if I've given you a, a prayer rule, and some people have that from me, a certain number of Jesus prayers, then you don't, you don't get to waver on that because you can do that anytime. Like you and I have talked about that a little bit, doing, you know, on the prayer rope. You can say your pre-communion prayers and then you can say your Jesus prayer later, for example. Um, some people I've given them a rule of prayer with a certain number of psalms that they, that they need to do on any given day. And I'll tell them that if they would like, they can set the psalm reading aside on Sunday morning so that they can do the pre-communion prayers. So anyway... But that's getting into kind of individually curated approaches to prayer that I do with with people. Most people, when they start, they just get the little prayer book and they open up in the morning and they do the morning prayers, which takes about five minutes or so. I know. I need to get a copy of that. Um, There is a little book that has the, the service of preparation for Holy Communion and some additional prayers. It's really nice. Fits right in your pocket. But also, you don't even have to buy a book because I have a a PDF on the website on the How to Become an Orthodox Christian page. You just click that link, you can print it up or put it it on your phone if you have to. I prefer if you don't use your phone for prayer because you use your phone for everything else. And, you know, the phone is so distracting. It's better to have things that are kind of set aside, holy, sanctified for prayer specifically. but uh, it's in most prayer books. And if you have questions about that service of preparation, let me know. But uh, anyway, so I know I need to get one of those little books. I really like it. And it has the, has the small comp line and it has the Akathis to the Theotokos in there. All in that, just little tiny. I could, my pockets are so full. I can barely button my bottom button because my pockets like are so full of things. But... Uh, but I think I could fit one of those in my pocket along with everything else. So a while back, you asked me about union with the Oriental Church. And I said something kind of general like, 
during times of persecution, people are kind of brought together. And I've thought that, you know, it might take something as extreme as persecution for there to be a union established between the different groups that have broken from one another. But I wanted to clarify because I didn't, I didn't mean that somehow the Oriental Orthodox and the, the canonical Orthodox are just going to meld into one another. Really, when unification takes place, it essentially means that, that they become Orthodox. Now, there would need to be a thorough conversation about what that would look like, what it would in, imply and entail. And that would take a lot of effort, a ton of effort, labor, and sacrifice for people who are really godly and trying to, it would, it would really take the breath of the Holy Spirit and some serious ascetical, you know, self-giving for, for people to want to establish the unity of for a schism that's been in place for over a millennium and a half. Because um, that was really kind of the original, one of the first, you know, breaks that happened in the church. So I didn't want, I, I was kind of general about it. I said, I said that there's kind of always hope and and maybe through persecution, through when we, when we undergo duress, we'll be forced to unity in a way, and that is possible. But but it doesn't mean that all of the different forms of Christianity are just going to get thrown into a blender and then become one nice new perfect religion. I mean, we really do have a strong conviction that the canonical Orthodox Church is the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And our, our approach to ecumenism is that um, in order to be in communion with one another, it requires con- becoming orthodox. So I, I wanted to clarify in case I left any gray area. So let's see. Um, I wrote a little note right after that session, and then I haven't shared it with you. But regarding healing of the East Oriental Schism, be clear the path to healing takes place through return or conversion to orthodoxy. This is the only way to heal from heresy. I don't necessarily believe that there is an institutional solution to the schism. As for now, the healing takes place through individuals entering the church and therefore accepting the ecumenical councils, the holy mysteries, and the way of life that is our common path to salvation. So I wrote that because you asked that question and I felt like I lacked clarity a few weeks ago. So, it's a, it, a long question. I mean, there have been some conversations, but well, and there, there, there is, there's also a kind of some, somewhat of a rebuttal from the Holy Mountain. Yeah, so, I know. Because it's more complicated than just saying, well, we, we disagreed, but now it's we like each other or something like that. You know, there's more to it. So, But I, I just wanted to address it to follow up with greater clarity for you um, and for anyone else who's here too. I don't know if any of you were here or, or heard the session uh, via the recording. So now we are going to get into our session topic. Last week, I was just going to briefly talk about fasting and then ended up spending the whole time talking about fasting. And... Uh, it was a nice conversation because fasting is a huge part of our of our life in the in the church obviously we 
we spend like half of the year doing some kind of variation on fasting. You know, I always tell people, I've probably told you guys a million times, you know, asceticism is a hard sell. You know, orthodoxy is not very marketable for that reason. Because we're not trying to sell a diet. I mean, we're trying to sell, we're not trying to sell self-help. We're actually trying to, we're trying to teach people that the way to healing is to die to yourself. Oh, that sounds pretty neat. No, no one says that. No one says that that sounds neat. They might say, I really need that. Because I'm totally egocentric. I'm selfish. selfish. I'm broken and lost. And I need the church. Well, then we'll say, yeah, here we are, you know. Here we are. But that's one of the reasons why I, I really struggle with uh, some of the online, even what I perceive as is like marketing of orthodoxy. We're trying to make it look better than it is in a way. Make it look appealing. But it's not really appealing unless you want it, unless you want to go forth from yourself. And uh, so it's not very marketable in that way. Although I've probably told some of you guys, one of my friends who was near a, a college campus came up with a little clever way of trying to hook some college students. He said, come experience the contemporary Orthodox worship of the fourth century in the Orthodox Church. So I thought that was kind of sweet. So do you guys want to pass some of the books around and see? And then you ordered one. They're back in publication and you can get the book on Amazon. Yeah, it's not a cheap book because it's not mass published. But we're on chapter three. And then let me see, Judd, since you're online, I'll see if I can share my screen. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Page 65. Is it page 65, you guys? Yeah, unless somebody else doesn't have a Candace or. Yep, they said it's page 65. Yeah. Plus, it's probably more annoying to follow along because I stop all the time and interrupt myself and get lost. I've, I've thought about maybe just telling you guys not even to try to follow along and just use the book kind of like lecture notes or something. But uh, anyway, we're talking about creation. And uh, I, I love the word creation. I love it. Because... Creation, the word creation, presupposes um, a creator. It needs to be a capital C, though. I love the word cre creation because it presupposes that it has a source or a creator. And so... You know, I even like the word creature. People in, who are in sci-fi and fantasy, they go, look at that little creature or something like that. I'm like, no, cre a creature is something that has been created. So you and I are creatures, and that's a good thing. I don't mind that word, even though it's been co-opted by, you know, I don't know, some uh, horror movies and things like that. But I, I really love the term, um, the terms creation and Creature, because they presuppose a creator. And it's nice to talk about creation because the Orthodox Church has a, 
has a different view on creation than, than the predominant Western view. And that actually is something that St. Gregory Palamas dealt with at length in his dispute with Barlam, who was an Italian monk, and others in the 14th century. They basically were kind of dualists and materialists. They thought that, that the world was essentially fallen, corrupted, and irredeemable, and that the goal of, of the person who's being saved is to escape the, the world, to escape the creation and the body. And so they were at odds with themselves. And it begged the question then of what, what the implications of the incarnation were then. Did Christ take on a body simply to discard it? No, he didn't. Because we know he ascended in the flesh and his, the, every cell of the human organism of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ was God, united, perfectly united with God. So we're, we are not to hate our body, but we're to reclaim it as that temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we are to dis despise the fallen aspects of it and to mortify the flesh, so to speak. As I mentioned, that word flesh that St. Paul uses, I mentioned in today's homily. Um, so, we look at the world that way too, because God entered into the world not to destroy it, but to redeem it because he loves, he wouldn't create anything other than what he loves. He didn't create something so that he could turn against it and therefore prove his power. To whom? To himself? To his friends? No. We're the ones who in our fallenness have this existential dread and I think a kind of hatred of the material because we've invited, we've, we've used the material world as a, as a means of separating ourselves from God and we've become idolaters. You know, we've started, to see, we've, we see the world as an end in itself and it doesn't satisfy us. We know we need it somehow because we're dependent, we're physically dependent on food, for example, food and drink. But when we overdo it with food and drink, what does it do? It, it harms us. It damages us. It's not a blessing. So we get mad at the world and we blame it on the creation or something like that. You know. But if we despise it, then we're despising something that we need. So we're stuck in the middle. We don't know what to do. Should I love it or should I hate it? And my answer to that is yes. We have a love and a hate relationship with the material world. We hate it when it's been misappropriated and misused, when it's been turned into an alternative to God, created by God, but we somehow, in our blindness, we see it as something that's separate from God. And remember, there is nothing that is, there is nothing that is, apart from having been created by God. We fail to see that. And that's why we become idolaters. Or we hate the world because it doesn't fulfill our desires. So we try to see the world as an end in itself, which just leads to death. Or we try to escape the world, which God gave us as a sacrament, as a way of, as a way of blessing us 
and satisfying us and expressing his love for us. And if we oppose that, then that leads to death as well. So we're left with ourselves, you know, frustrated with ourselves in the world because we misunderstand the, God's relationship to the material world. Because we misunderstand our, relate, our relationship, our identity as people created in the image of God and we misunderstand the implication of the incarnation of God becoming man, taking on the flesh fully and entering into his creation. Not despising it, but loving it. So there's my little intro that's not in the book. So let's read a little bit. Man was created in the image of God in order to live in a perfect communion of love with God, with his fellow men, and with the physical world. And I'll mention something when, when I instruct people on preparation for confession. And people are trying to figure out what should they confess. Like, what is this sin? What isn't? What should and shouldn't I confess? First of all, I tell them to pray about it. <laughs> That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, to convict of sin. But also, it's anything that opposes our, our God-given kind of symbiosis with all that is. And what I mean is our relationship, our meaningful relationship with, first of all, God. Anything that I, that I willfully do to oppose or separate myself from God or to deny God, um, to try to hide from Him or anything like that. So what do I do willfully to separate myself from God? Do I forget Him? Do I pretend like He's not there at times, you know? Number one, my relationship with God. Number two, my relationship with other people. Have I willfully alienated myself from other people or alienated them from me? Have I sought to harm, uh, willfully harm another person, which is usually an act of desperation from someone who's, who's hurting, deeply hurting, and doesn't know what else to do? We don't know how to heal, and so we harm because it gives us a, a temporary sense of control. But it's sinful because... You're harming another person who's created in the image of God. So what have I done to hurt other people? Another one is, what have I done to harm myself too? I mean, have I, through excesses, through eating too much, through, through drugs and alcohol, through, through self-image, through vanity, whatever it may be, what have I done to myself, who am also created in the image of God, to oppose fulfilling that calling to be one conformed to the likeness of God. What have I done? And you can come up with quite a few things if you start thinking about it. And then the, the fourth is, what have I done to, to um, desecrate God's creation? To care less about the world? To treat it like it's just going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so who cares? Or just using it as a source of personal satisfaction. But what have I done, you know? To, to fail to see the world as God's creation through wastefulness. I'm not talking. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go on a political. I'm not on a political tangent about going green or anything like that. I mean, but we should be good stewards of God's creation. One of my favorite stories to tell about our relationship with the world and repentance is this. 
There's a book, a collection of the, the sayings of various desert fathers called the Ever Gatinos. Four volume set. It's like an extent, and it has an accent on the last syllable. It's not Ever Gatinos, but it's Ever Gatinos. And um, it's kind of like, throughout the, throughout the history of the church, it's kind of like a, uh, almost like a confessor's manual in a way for an encyclopedia on different struggles and passions that we, sins and passions that we have. Each uh, chapter has a, a, a hypothesis. I have a couple copies downstairs. Maybe I'll bring one up sometime and show you. It has a hypothesis like, an example would be, that man, sh- the hypothesis would be, that man should never despair because the mercy of God can heal him from everything that would separate him from his true identity or something like that. And then it'll have stories and little sayings from the lives of mostly desert fathers. And one of my favorite ones is about this monk who was having a hard time believing that he could be forgiven. And I've used it in a homily once before. And I've used it, of course, I use it like every year in catechism. And I'm afraid I repeat it three or four times. But a monk who went to this elder to talk about his struggle to believe that God could forgive him. I fall short. I miss the mark, which is what sin means, literally missing the mark. I fall short, I miss the mark, and over and over again, not just once, but many times, and I ask for forgiveness, and I receive it, and then I do it again. How could God forgive me? And the elder gave him such a nice response. He said, when you tear your cassock, what do you do? Well, I, I sew it up. Like he probably only has one cassock, you know, this monk who lives out in the desert. If you ever see some of these like desert desert dwelling monks, their their cassocks are, like have patches all over them, and, but he says, I sew it up and I fix it. He goes, If you sew your cassock, then how much more would God want to heal you when you have a rip, when you have a sin in your life? And I thought, that's really sweet. But what if someone asked you that question? So what do you do when you have a rip in your shirt? Do you? Maybe you would. But you know what most people do these days? Throw it out. Garbage. And look, we're stewards of creation, right? I mean, we're stewards of God's creation, And we take things, and when they don't meet our needs anymore, we discard them. So it makes sense to me that we would think that when we are faulty, ripped, broken, that God would discard us as well. Because of the way we relate to the world that God has given us. If it doesn't work, we just throw it away. And so on some deep level, we would think that God would just... He, he, if I throw away things, then God would throw me away too. 
Now, our relationship with the world is broken and faulty. We need to, we are, we're total consumerists. We buy something, we don't like it, we throw it away, we waste so much, we've got so, so, we're so excessive. You know, you buy five bags of chips to see which one you like the best and throw the other four away. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm just saying our, the way we relate to the world becomes a projection, subconsciously even, of how we think God would relate to us. And if I throw things away that I don't like, then I, and actually God created us to be, you know, pre, the priests and stewards of, of the world, to love the world and to take care of it and to restore it. And... Uh, so it's interesting to think about that because we have, we have a broken relationship with the world and therefore we have a broken perception of God at times too. It makes us think that we could be perhaps unfor- unforgivable in a way, discarded and easily thrown into a, a rubbish heap. And through healing, or through, have, through healing our understanding of who God is, and letting the implication of that result in the healing of our relationship with the world. See, a lot of times there's a disconnect there. We start to talk about how loving and redeeming and forgiving God is, but we don't ex- live that by extension. And it, it, it puts us in a, um, a little predicament in our own mind. It makes us think that this, everything I believe sounds really neat, but it's not really working. That's because I'm not carrying it forward in my life. And there was something you said this week that was really lovely to me. I wrote it down. Church teaches us who God is. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote, you said, the church is teaching us who God really is, who Christ really is. And so it's, it's healing your understanding of who God is. Because a lot of times we've had a misunderstanding of who God is. We've perceived of Him in some way and we want to respond to it. And we get certain things right and we get certain things wrong. And so that's why there needs to be a continual healing of who, of who we believe God to be. One of the huge turning points in my own Christian life was when I... I had been a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. I remember like four years old, willfully saying I believe in Jesus. And I did my own little, you know, rebellions and things throughout my teen years. But I always, I always believed. I always loved, loved Christ. Even though I rebelled against certain kind of superficial social norms that I thought that, I, that seemed to pervade the culture of Christianity that made it tight-lipped and superficial and moralistic. I thought God was more than that, and he is. But I hit a point where I thought, what if the things, what if everything I presume about, about Christ, when I say Christ, I think I know what I mean. Well, what if some of the things I, I presume about Christ are, are wrong? Maybe I'm imposing a presupposition upon God rather than learning who God really is. And that's when I started reading the New Testament and actually paying attention to what it's saying rather than looking for what I wanted to get out of it. You know, walking, walking through the New Testament like I was walking through a grocery store, a snack aisle or something like that. 
forgive me. Um, so that was a turn, huge turning point, and it started to heal my, fix and heal my understanding of who God is. Through actually just reading the New Testament and listening to what was actually being said. I like to say that's kind of what converted me to orthodoxy. All of a sudden, baptism made a lot of sense to me. Holy communion and man's relationship with the world, actually. Because I was trying to free myself from the confines of my own presuppositions and my own paradigm. And just let, rather than, I like to say this, rather than reading the scriptures, I was trying to kind of be read by the scriptures. If that makes sense. Kind of like how in our iconography, and if you've ever noticed, these ones don't do it as much. Some, some of the icons are, most of them are done in a reverse perspective. So usually you have a vanishing point in the distance. You know, when you're doing, when you're doing any kind of painting or something like that, things get smaller as they're, further, as they're further away. You know, there's a vanishing point somewhere going away from you. Well, in this case, the vanishing point actually is, is you in a lot of the iconography. It's a, it's a reverse perspective. So it begins with you and it's opening you up to what's there. That's why a lot of times icons are referred to as windows to heaven. You're looking into an expanse, that's something that is, goes beyond itself. And that takes you beyond yourself, although it begins with your perspective in a way. But then it opens you up to something far greater. Whereas with something that has the traditional perspective, you, you're limited by, by your own, the limitations of your own perspective and the vanishing point that's out there somewhere, rather than opening up to an expanse of the mystery of God who's revealing himself to you right, right where you're at, if you're willing to have that light shine on you, so to speak. Sorry, it sounds a little kind of theoretical, but if you pay attention Look around at some point at some of the icons, especially ones that have um, that have uh, scenes like from different events and things, and you'll see that there's a what's called a reverse perspective. Okay, I only read the first sentence. This is going to take us three weeks. No, this is actually isn't a very long chapter. So, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So begins the Bible. Genesis 1.1 It's significant that the record of God's revelation to mankind should begin in this way, for the divine scriptures do not simply take the existence of the world for granted. Remember, it says God created. So we're going back to this idea that we, we do presuppose that there is a creator. We believe that. It's through faith. On the contrary, scriptures affirm that the world and all that is in it derives its being from God. The world did not create itself. It was created by God and owes its continued existence to his power and will. The book of Genesis, however, does not provide a scientifically detailed account of how the world was created. Rather, Genesis answers the questions, who and why? Who and why? Genesis, therefore, is concerned with the meaning of the world's existence, Specifically, the scriptures affirm two very important points about the world and our place in it. 
God created the world out of nothing. Do you know what? Um, do you know what that's called in uh, theological terminology? Out of nothing. Ex, ex nihilo, which is actually a Latin term. But there were various views, like Platonic views and things, that would say that that God, whoever the creator was, used pre-existent matter, which meant that there was something other than God. Which was, if there was something other than God out there that was eternal then it was in some way equal, at least on a level with God. But what we say is there, there was God and he created out of nothing. And only God can do that. God can create something out of nothing. And then two, of all the creatures, man uh, is unique because he's created in the image of God. Another, another Latin term. Oh, you ever heard that? Imago Dei? Um, man was created in God's image. According to his likeness. And according to his likeness. Man or humanity, you know. Anthropos just means man, like mankind. But man created in, I should, I'm getting lazy, I'm not getting out of my chair. In God's image. Forgive my messy handwriting. I mean, you have it right in front of you, but it's nice to put things on the board sometimes. Okay. First of all, the world was created out of nothing in Latin, ex nihilo. In, in the ancient world, this was a rather revolutionary idea. For the Greeks, the cosmos was eternal. The cosmos, like that which is, you could say, that which is, which has been, ontolo- it was, it's ontologically eternal, you could say, if you want to sound kind of philosophical. Um, the cosmos was eternal. It had no beginning and no end. They taught that God made the world out of pre-existent matter. Furthermore, pagan religion affirmed that the world itself is divine. Pantheism. And the church is not pantheistic. Because that which is came into being through God. Therefore, it's other than God, but it's not apart from him. Against the prevailing opinions of the day, however, the divinely inspired prophets of the Old Testament in the Apostles of Christ affirmed that the world was not eternal, but was created from nothing. God alone is eternal and immortal. If God, is, if God as the Greek philosophers taught, had made the world out of some preexistent matter, then he would be more properly called the arranger of the world, or craftsman, you know, rather than its creator. The craftsman is limited by the materials with which he works. God would then be in some sense dependent on, upon matter. But such is not the case. For God created the world not because of any necessity or out of any preexistent matter, but by his free and infinite will. And because of this, the world can in no way be considered divine. The ancient pagan religions are being revived in our own day under the guise of the New Age movement and different kinds of feminist theology and witchcraft and some extreme forms of environmentalism. Against such movements, the church firmly maintains that between the being of God and the being of the world, there is an irreducible but not irreconcilable gulf. There is a distinction between creator and creation. And that is, that is a, an, an essential distinction lest we become confused and become idolaters. And a lot of the times 
when we confuse creator and creation, it's because we want to deify ourselves. Through loving the world, through worshiping the world, we're actually, it's just, it's all a manipulative manipulation, a manipulated form of self-worship, self-deification. Consider the difference between the generation, the coming forth, the beginning of the sun, and the creation of the world. God eternally, before all ages, begets his son, the word of God, from his own being. While he creates the world by his will out of nothing at the beginning of time. In Proverbs 9, we hear, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first step in spiritual growth is to recognize where one stands in the grand scheme of things. Man must realize that he is not his own creator. Look, it's important for us to realize this and to say it from the heart and with complete intellectual honesty, spiritual honesty, and emotional honesty. I am not God. (laughs) Okay? That's something that we need to come to terms with and we need to think about what that means. Because in the face of anxiety, for example, terrible anxiety and things going on around you, one of the greatest consolations is that I am not God and I cannot be, but I can allow, I can believe, I can make room for God to be God. And when I submit to the reality that I am not God and God is, then I begin to trust in Him as the one who arranges, orders, and allows all things according to His providence. And then I can breathe again rather than being in the, you know, the desperate straitjacket of my self-will trying to climb my way to meaning. I am not God, but I have an identity. I have a value and a purpose because of God. But there's there's an important distinction between creator and creation. It's essential. So, man has to realize that he's not his own creator, People are, are into where we live in an age of individualism. I've, I've, seen, I've seen a person with a tattoo on their fingers that says self-made. Nope, sorry. Actually, you wouldn't have had those tattoos if someone else didn't even put them on there. It would be really hard to do. I mean, maybe you could, but anyway. But that's a, that's a delusion. We're self-made. He is, man is not the source of his own being and he's not self-sufficient. In other words, man is not God. This does not mean, however, that man's life has no meaning or that he's a mere plaything of God. On the contrary, God created man to be the crown of the entire creation and bestowed upon him an honor of infinite significance. The second major point which the book of Genesis affirms is that man is created in the image of God. to live in communion with him throughout eternity. And that's a good calling to have. The ancient philosophers took great pride in calling man a microcosm. That is, a a miniature world. But St. Gregory of Nyssa pointed out that the same could be said of a mouse. 
What makes man special, unique in all of the created universe is his creation in the image of God. According to Father George Capsanis, abbot of the monastery of St. Gregory on Mount Athos, made according to the image of God, quoting Genesis, Genesis, signifies both the origin and the goal of our existence. So we weren't just brought into being by God so that um, he could watch us run around like a bunch of fools and feel bad, you know, hate ourselves and one another. He made us, he originated us, but he is our beginning and our end. It feels like we're a bunch of fools running around, bobbling our heads, bumping into one another sometimes. That's because we've lost perspective. But it signifies the origin and the goal of our existence. So far as we image forth the wise creative God, so far do we discover in ourselves the charisms or the the graces of knowledge and creativity. And that's from his book called The Eros of Repentance. But what does this mean? If a man is not God or a part of God, in what way is he created in God's image? This question admits of no simple answer. For throughout history, the fathers of the church have given many different answers. Many have said that the image of God resides in man's soul. Others have identified the image of God with man's free will or his ability to govern the earth. In a sense, all of these answers are correct. One time, St. Sophroni was giving a talk. St. Sophroni started a monastery in England. Essex, England. You've been there. Lucky. <laughs> Someone who I really love is the is uh, the spiritual father at that monastery, Father Zacharias. And uh, but Saint Sophroni, because he was in in England, he was in the Western world, and he'd go. Sometimes he'd go give, even though he's a mystic, he'd go give talks at uh, university and things. He was talking to some university students, and toward the end of his talk. He was doing questions and answers and a little, I'll say clever, just call it clever euphemistically. A clever college student got up to try to put this humble monk in his place, you know, because he was talking about God. And he said, okay, you just tell me what God is. What is God? And he's trying to corner him. And Saint Sophroni said, well, okay, but first you tell me what man is. And he couldn't, he couldn't answer. And one of the reasons I say that here is because to say that we were created in the image of God means that we were created as a mystery in a way that's unfolding. I remember once I gave a homily called The Miracle and the Mystery of the Other and you texted, you emailed me that week after you encountered someone and you, you saw that. But um, so, so there are aspects of us that make us different than other, cre- other creatures. And most of them, if you, if you expand up upon them, would be a correct indication of what it means to be created in the image of God. But I think part of it is that also, if I could add to the, to the heap, not that I'm a saint or an elder, you know, 
Yet, I like to say. Not yet. <laughs> I have hope, you know. We'll see. But, uh, you know, add to the opinion pile that it means to also to be like God is unfathomable, incomprehensible, uncircumscribable, a mystery, yet re- being revealed. So is man. As having been created by God to be one with God then that means that there is a mystery in each and every one of us that is being revealed and will be for all of eternity. So, not to overuse the word mystery, although we really like that word in the Orthodox tradition. So perhaps it's just best to say that it is the totality of man's being which constitutes the image of God. In other words, the image of God in us is everything which makes us unique and personal beings. And that is, that is a, that's an important technical, and you wouldn't catch it necessarily here by just reading this. Oh, yeah, personal beings, blah, 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 move on. But in uh, the scripture and in theological terminology, any mention of the word person is a reference to a, something that has um, an essence that has an identity has a purpose and a being. And uh, just like the persons of the Trinity who are in perfect communion with one another. And so to, to refer to man as a personal being also means that he's capable of love because love takes place in the context of communion or the relationship between persons. So we could, other, we could also say, along with saying that being in the image of God is just a summation of the totality of our being, but it also means that we were created to love. Who was it? Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I didn't ever read Descartes much, but, but the Orthodox response, and I think we, it shows up in our text later on, the Orthodox response to that would be, I love, therefore I am. We've already seen that God is first and foremost personal existence. He is the one for whom to be is to love. Remember, we say God is love. Not love is fill in the blank, but God is love. Thus, it's man's ability to enter into personal relationships, his ability to love that makes him a being like unto God. Man is, in other words, created in the image of the Holy Trinity. For man to be what he was created to be, To fulfill his cosmic destiny, he must attain to the likeness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Man is therefore an inherently relational being. He cannot be conceived of as an individual. Individual. So, individual. Individual. Or this idea of autonomy. Self, self, autonomy means self-law or self-rule, you know. Um, now, I do think, depends on what you mean when you say these words. When you say individual, can't, wouldn't someone say, well, Father, wouldn't you say that everyone's unique? Like everyone is an, is an individual? You say, yes. But the problem is we turn it into an ism. Our individuality leads to individualism 
And it's, it's kind of that self-deification. I put myself at the center of existence. Therefore, the world is there to, to please me. And, you know, um, that's where a lot of people talk a lot about entitlement these days. The young people are so entitled. It's this idea, this idea, individualism that you were created, the world is your oyster, and it's there for you to get everything you've ever wanted out of it. No. No, it's there for you to participate in the beautiful movement and rhythm and relationship of all things created by God that all belong to one another. Don't just belong to you. Yours for the taking. That's that's a time of a type of idolatry, you know, self-idolatry. You love the person in the mirror. And the fathers of the church would say that at the core of the human condition is that terrible sin called, ironically, self-love, which isn't love at all. Self-love. There is no such thing, really. So it's an oxymoron, to use that term, if you know what that means. Yes, sir. With the self-love, uh, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as thyself, how is that kind of mm-hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, that's right. And that's a good question. And I would answer with the, the words of St. Siloam and St. Anthony, who's, you know, and many of the saints who are just basically echoing one another. Um, St. Siloam said something so, so simply. He said, um, my brother, you could, or so you could say neighbor, is my life. So we were created for one another. And so you don't, so you could say, love your neighbor as yourself. There are different ways of understanding it grammatically. You could say, love him as much as you love yourself. Or love him because he is yourself. Because you are in communion with one another. We are created for one another. So we find ourselves in one another. St. Anthony said something similar like, uh, what did he say? Like, I'll have to look it up. It was, it's very similar to my brother is my life. It's just a little longer. Like, you know, our, our rise and our fall is with our neighbor or something like that. But it, it just shows the inextricable bond that people have with one another because we are created for one another. And that's why one of my favorite lines for, from... Um, from Abba, St. Isaac the Syrian, talking about loving other people and how we were created by God for one another, he could say boldly, if you've seen your brother, if you've seen the other person, he says, then you have seen God. Because you've seen God's purpose, you've seen God's image in the other person. You were created to be in communion with that person. So it's not, we would interpret it in a different way. Like, you know, you really like um, gardenia scented lotion. And so you could give, you should give that to your friend because you love them as much as you love yourself. You know what I mean? We see it on a more uh, essential level. My brother is my life. I can't, if I, if I start to perceive myself as somehow separated from anyone else on earth, then I'm living in delusion. 
because our lives are interconnected. And whether we like it or not, and this is really hard and almost impossible for us to understand, everything I do affects everyone else on earth. Scary responsibility. So, man, yeah. An easy way that I look at it is if you... Like, we're all made of the same stuff. This bench is made out of the same atoms. It's molecules is just in a different order than our body is. Mm-hmm. And that's, everybody's made out of the same stuff. We're just organized in different <laughs> areas. The earth, yeah. Well, and it, it causes you to kind of respect everything in that way. So that's you know, As having meaning, as having value, because it's been created by God. Yeah, that's right. We're all in union. And it doesn't, and it doesn't mean that uh, the bench is God. But the leaf, but it was created by God, and so the the orthodox term, well, the, the I guess the philosophical term for it is not pantheism, but panentheism. Have you ever heard of this term? It means that not that everything is God, but that God is that God is in everything in a way because it's the energy by the energy and grace and life of God that that everything exists. If God were not somehow present in what has been made, then it wouldn't exist anymore. It would cease to be. So man is an inherently relational being. He cannot be conceived of as an individual. In the words of the English clergyman and poet John Donne, no man is an island entire of himself. We try. We really try sometimes. Because we want to be special. For man to be is to be in relation with two others. Specifically, this means that man is created to relate to God to his fellow men, and to the physical world. And that goes back to that, 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 uh, those, those criteria I was giving you for when you're evaluating what is, what is sin, my relationship to God, my relationship to others, to the world, and then I add you know, to, my, to myself as well. More than anything else, man is created to be in a relationship of love with the God who made him. St. Athanasius the Great wrote, For what use is existence to the creation, to, excuse me, to the creature. For of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? It would just be a big ruse, a big mind trip. I mean, a big joke. If the God who created us didn't love us, then created us to be, you know, didn't create us to be in communion with him. Truly man's sojourn on earth would be pointless if he had no way of knowing and loving the one who gave him being. God did not create man as a robot or a pet. Out of his infinite love and wisdom, he bestowed upon man the capacity to know and love his maker as a friend and father. This is the center of man's being, the purpose for which he was created. Without this loving relationship with God, man is not fully human, but he's an empty shell destined to return to the earth from which he was made. As blessed Augustine said, our hearts can have no rest until they rest in thee. Secondly, man is created to be in a relationship of love with his fellow men. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. With these words, God ruled out the possibility that man was created to be an isolated individual, a prisoner of his own ego. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell together in an unbreakable communion of love, 
So man created in the image of the Holy Trinity is meant to dwell in unity and harmony with his fellow men. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It says in Psalm 132. For man to be what he is created to be, he must love all people. For love is of God and everyone that loveth God is born of God and knoweth God. Thus also our Lord enjoins us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. There's a funny story from the... Do you guys know who Father Thomas Hopko is? Mm-hmm. So if um, There are too many podcasts out there. I, I was having a conversation several years ago with someone about just all the like hundreds, now thousands of podcasts, even Orthodox ones. Look, even I have one. Silly. But there are so many podcasts out there. Someone said to me, if I wanted to hear someone's opinion, I'd just go to coffee hour. That's kind of how a lot of the, those like, podcasts are. It's just another person talking about stuff that they. Let's talk with one another. Let's chat. But there is a good podcast by Father Thomas Hopko, who of blessed memory, who has passed away. But he was an, an incredible teacher and related orthodoxy in a way that was direct and insightful, but also comprehensible. Unlike when I start talking about it sometimes. But he he was an incredible teacher. He was the dean of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary and a sought-after speaker and teacher, I mean, just in general. So if if you want to look up a uh, a good podcast, all of the archives are on the Ancient Faith Radio website, Speaking the Truth in Love. And it's not a waste of time for you to go through hundreds of episodes. Toward the end of his life, as, as he was retired, living on the grounds of a, a monastery, he just started recording himself. It was like he was just trying to get everything out that he could before he passed away. So he did Speaking the Truth in Love, and um, I think he might have done a couple other ones as well. But worship in Spirit and Truth. And it took him like... He was doing worship in spirit and truth on the divine liturgy. And it took him like 40 episodes before he even got to the beginning of the liturgy. I mean, that's, he was like an encyclopedia, but not just a talking head. You know, he, he really experienced life, the, the Orthodox Christian life. And, um, but he referring to this passage. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Or a new commandment I give you, you know, that you love one another even as I have loved you. He said he went to give a talk at a church once. And above there's a, like an apse, you know, semicircle above the altar. And, uh, and it said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And Father Thomas, he saw it and he goes, oh man, I, I can't pass up this opportunity. So he went up to the priest and he goes, what does that say up there? He goes, well, a new commandment I you know, give to you that you love one another. He goes, that's not right. The guy goes, well, what? I mean, it's from the scripture. He goes, but look at it. That's not correct. He goes, what? Well, it was a priest before me who, put it, who had it put up there. <laughs> you know, he's like, what's going on? And, he, and yeah, you blame someone else. And then finally he goes, he knew he was starting to feel sorry for the guy and he goes, 
it doesn't complete the sentence, even as I have loved you. That self-giving, selfless, canonic, to use that, that Greek word that we like, that self-emptying love. See, I don't just love you so that I can get, like a lot of times when we love, we love in a way that is to our benefit to get something out of it. We will give to another person in as much as we get something in return. But that's not how God's love for us is. And so his sacrificial love is the love that we're called to, to love even as he has loved. And that's another mystery that we are entering into and experiencing. Every rationalistic philosophy, every form of humanism that exalts the individual and considers him to be the absolute value in life is an unholy caricature of true human life and leads man only to hell because it leads him to separation from God and others. This kind of individualism. St. Maximus, the confessor, lived in the 6th and 7th centuries, sums up the matter quite succinctly. He says, Do not disdain the commandment of love, because by it you will become a son of God. If you transgress it, you will become a son of hell. Finally, man is created to be in relationship of love with the physical world. And that's not to say that man is to love the world as an end in itself but that the world is to become a part of his loving relationship with God. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis 1. Man was created as the crown, last, as the crown and glory of the whole creation. The world was created for man so that through his wise and loving use of it, it might be a means of communion with God. Father Alexander Schmemann, in his book, For the Life of the World, if you've, if you've dug into, I know he tickles your fancy a lot. I mean, he's, some of his books are kind of hard to read, but at least, at least the first chapter in For the Life of the World is just incredibly helpful. But he, he puts the whole of the the cosmos in within the framework of being a sacrament. The whole of the world, the whole of creation was given as a means of revealing God, of, of God's self-revelation. And, uh, and that's true. He created out, out of love for us. The world was created for man so that through his, meaning yours and my wise and loving use of it, it might be a means of communion with God. This does not mean that man has a right to abuse the world and treat it as a disposable commodity. But it does mean that the world was created to be man's servant. The proper relationship of a man to the world is a sacramental one. Man is to receive the world as God's gift and offer it back to God along with his whole life in a sacrifice of love and obedience. Man's creation in the image of the Holy Trinity means that man's very being and the way he is to live out his life is designed to image forth of the life of God himself. In this way, man attains under the likeness of God, just as the eternal Son of God, the perfect image of the Father, receives his being from the Father and offers all that he is back to the Father in love. 
so man created in the image of God is meant to offer all that he is back to God in love. And the interesting thing is, when you give forth from yourself, when you give what God is only what what God has given you to give, it doesn't leave. It doesn't result in uh, emptiness. When you pour forth from yourself, it doesn't. You you don't um, implode. And God laughs at you and says, "Look how weak and weak you are, because you you know you you are so easily duped." You know. But God actually. This is what we would refer to as the enlargement of the heart. The more you you give love from the core, from the essence of your being, you know, in trusting God and in loving others, the more actually God increases your capacity to love through trusting in Him, knowing that the resource from which you draw is an infinite one. God is never going to run out of resources. But it takes a lot of trust to understand that. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of patience and time and waging war against our ego in order for us to experience what love is. In this way, man's being is established in the eternal and perfect love of God. It's, this is what we truly, excuse me, this is what truly defines man's being and gives purpose to his life. As, as we read in the book of Genesis, however, and as we know from personal experience, man has rejected his God-created vocation. And just in case you don't know that word vocation, just means calling, like what we were created for. Um, our calling of communion with the All-Holy Trinity. And man has thus failed to achieve the purpose for which he was created. This is known as the fall or the original sin. We shall address this failure in the next chapter. But as for now, let's consider the great glory for which we were created and the true value of our lives as persons created in the image of God. And we have a quote from, quite providentially, St. Gregory Palamas, whose memory we celebrate this day. St. Gregory says, Man was deemed worthy by God of such honor and providential care that before him, this entire sensible world came into being for his sake. And before him, right from the foundation of the world, the kingdom of heaven was prepared for his sake. And counsel concerning him was taken beforehand, and he was formed by the hand of God and according to the image of God. St. Gregory Palamas from his, what are called 150 chapters from the the, the collection called the Philokalia. And in... Uh, in kind of old ancient writings, a, ch- a chapter is really, it's, it's just a saying. So there's a, lots of little, like, little short quips or sayings or axioms, you could say. Um, so that's a good place to end. But it's important to, to also know when we talk of salvation, what are, what, what are we being saved from and what are we being saved unto? You know, what's the point? What are, and if we don't know what Father Zacharias calls the protology of man, you know, the, the origin, what we were created for and why, then we, don't, we won't understand what we were looking for, you know, what we're longing for to begin with. So that's why it's important to know what it is that we're lacking so that we can aim for that. And the fathers of the church and the scripture reveal that to us.
So we will we'll continue talking next week about, here we go, let me get, scroll ahead a little bit, about the fall of mankind. And when we talk about the fall of mankind, then we'll start dealing with why it is that we believe that we need salvation. You know, someone doesn't need a savior if they don't believe that they need to be saved. You know, and each and every one of us uniquely needs to come to the conclusion of our need for the savior. And we're given the freedom to admit or deny that as well. So anyway, that'll be a good conversation. So let's stop there. And it's look. Oh, it's only one o'clock. We have an hour. Uh, see, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We have an extra hour. I'm just getting started. No, I, you know, I didn't. I left my watch here. I don't like having my watch on during church services. Um, we're outside of time. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to subject myself. I'm not. You guys know. Does anybody really know what that means? Is anyone? No? Oh, that's a good question. God's the only, that's my favorite song by Chicago. But anyway, but uh, I didn't fix, I didn't turn my my watch ahead. But anyway, all right. Well, we'll end there, you guys, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers. May the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Um, thank you so much for being here today. God bless you all. Thank you for Go in peace. peace.